Welcome to Rust Belt Startup. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. This is a podcast that is focused on long-form conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, educators, or really anyone that's building an unconventional life in an unconventional location. So a couple of announcements before we get to this week's interview. Number one, um, I'm going to be uh, capping off what I guess I'm calling season one after the next episode. So we'll have this episode and one more episode coming out in two weeks and we're going to stick a fork in it. We're going to stick a fork in season one and I'll be back after the new year. So it's going to allow me to spend some time to get new episodes produced and, uh, and take a little bit, bit of a break and, uh, and, and be a dad and be a dad. My, my wife and I are, are expecting our, our second child any day now. And so I'm um, going to take some time off and, and, and go be a dad. So, uh, so yeah, this episode, next episode, sticking a fork in season one. So thank you to everyone that's been listening and, and your comments and people that have, have shared the podcast online with their friends. It's been a great experience so far. And uh, I don't take for granted that this is a long uh, podcast. I know some of you guys like the shorter episodes, but sometimes it takes an, an hour to get to the to get to the to the point it takes an hour to get through a conversation. And so I appreciate you sticking with me. The day you got pushed in was the day you learned to swim. And then the tide kept rising inch by inch. You tense up your spine. You test the waterline. Your arms are reeling. You're barely breathing. Rise up, taste some sweetness, and keep your head above the water. All right, so this week... Uh, I'm super excited to share with you guys a conversation that I recently had with one of my favorite songwriters out there, Ryan Montblou. And Ryan has been uh, has, has built an amazing career for himself, touring all over the country uh, and even a little bit internationally over the past decade. And uh, uh, his songs are amazing. He's got a great live show, and he's someone that I've 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 spent a lot of time uh, listening to, but also seeing live. And there's so many questions, you know, like when when you have a a, a person or an artist that you really respect or, or that you really like. There's always these, I'm sure there's a lot of questions that you have about um, their life or how they got to where they did. And today I got to ask those questions. I've been sitting on a lot of these for a while and uh, uh, got a hold of Ryan and, uh, and, and he said, yeah, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about uh, his story. So in this conversation, we really go into the guts of what it takes to build an audience, um, what, it, what it's like living on the road for years and years and years, and the importance of things like rest. Uh, we get into his songwriting process and, and where, do, where do good songs come from? What makes a good song? And how does he kind of navigate uh, doing music for a living? He's got some great stories, and I uh, uh, hope you dig it. hope you dig it. This is me and Ryan Motblue. nothing but you look so lonely out on the backstage like you lost the only thing keeping you here where I was where I was gonna start was um, was at was at the beginning uh, and and uh, I can remember being in I, God I must have been in college like 2003 or something like that and a friend of mine um, gave me a, a, a burned copy of stages and uh, it must, have, it must have been really early, 2003, 2004. When did that come out? That was 2003. 2003. So it must have been 2003. Was it Ryan Laurie? 
it was not Ryan. I didn't know who Ryan Laurie was at the time. Crazy. Yeah, this was a woman from Austin. Her name was Erin Leroy. Her name is. She's, she's still around. Erin Leroy. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, check this guy out. And, um, and so I had this record. had no idea um, who you guys were. And then I saw you play acoustic at the electric company. I was like, oh, this is pretty awesome. What I, wanna, what I wanted to know is um, when you were first starting out, I mean, and maybe this is pre-stages or, or post-stages, where, what, what, what made you decide or start this process of like, I can be a full-time musician? I think that was the goal. Like that, in some ways that was like the only goal that I've ever had. Like it's in music. I feel like now, like I've been searching for the next goal. Like, you know, now it's like stability and home or whatever, you know? Um, But no, when I I graduated from college in 99 and that's when like it all came together for me there. I was like, all of a sudden I was addicted to playing guitar and I started writing poetry and studying poetry. And then I started to sing my last semester of college. So graduating was like, everyone's like, what are you going to do? You know, like, and I was like, I think I want to make music. So then from then on, it was just about like figuring out how to make a living from it. And so where do you even start from there? Because there's a lot of people, I was one of those people when I got out of school in in 2003, I had, I had no plan. And I was playing in bands uh, here in Utica. And I was like, I think I want to make music, (laughs) but there's a whole, you know, there's a big jump between wanting to do that. And then I think understanding the business side of it you know so yeah were you just like oh i'm gonna go start knocking on doors or where'd you start no i so i got a job at a club i got a job at the house of blues the original house of blues was in harvard square and it was the first house of blues it was like built as like the prototype for the rest of the the ones that they would build Mm -hmm. but this one was a house so it was a 230 capacity venue like standing up it was a small place and it was a house and i used to so i just got a job there i had tried the summer before uh, when I was still in college and they wouldn't give me a summer job. And then I came back and uh, got a job there because like it's, you know, and so there's live music coming through there in this small club seven days a week. So what was the job? Were you like working sound? Or I stage? started as a host in the restaurant and then I was like selling the merch, selling the t-shirts. And then I like ended up like, I bar backed for a while and scrubbed the bars and, you know, and then, but I, the, the main thing I ended up doing was working in the ticket booth. So there was like this little ticket booth, like under the stairs downstairs, it was like this little dungeon. It was like, just Mm -hmm. like this closet, basically that was the ticket booth. And um, I would just sit in there and sell tickets and answer the phones for the club. So, and that like just taught me so much. It taught me about like things you wouldn't think about, like guest lists and, you know, yeah. capacity club and, and selling ticket prices. And, you know, they would add on these ticket fees and stuff. It was like, it was, you know, it was like house of blues is like a weird company. It's like corporate blues club that has a restaurant and mm-hmm. everything like, but in and of itself, that club was like a very cool place with very cool people working there. And they had stuff from around the world coming in every night. So that was like the, that was, I needed that experience. I think I knew that going into it. I was just like, I need to see like how, what happens. Mm-hmm. You know? So that was and, like huge. And did, was, did you ever get to play there? With that early mm-hmm. venue? Eventually I did. Yeah. But it took me a while. I remember, I mean, it took me a long time. And I remember like singing in front of the staff once after a bunch of drinks at, <laughs> at like, you know, I was still just like, learning how to let it come out on my own Mm -hmm. and so at that time I started also taking any gig I could get so that's when I was playing in like just terrible sports bars or 
would play by the subway a little bit or I, I played like TGI Fridays in my hometown. I played, no way. I, I played at Starbucks. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I would just, any crappy gig, like I would just, cause I just, but that was more as it went along. But, but yeah, like that, I would just take it because I just wanted to, you know, do only music. Um, so, but eventually, yeah, I remember like being all nervous walking up to Tao Leismeyer was like the guy who used to book at that House of Blues. And he, he was like an amazing dude who made it. Um, he's since passed away, but he made that place bigger than what it was. I mean, he got like, you know, I saw, I saw Lenny Kravitz play in that little room. What? People with a gospel band. Yeah, I saw James Taylor sit in with his daughter. I saw like Toots and the Maytals would like blow it up. Or like when Solive was getting big, they were yeah. doing multiple nights there. Or just like Taj Mahal, like people just like these bigger he would just make it bigger than it was so i remember just walking up to the booth he was in while i was working and like nervously like giving him my demo tape which was a tape and uh and just just seeing if i could get a gig there you know and eventually i got on like they they had like these matinees they would do like a saturday matinee and i got on a couple of those and wow. then, so 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 and then i was playing like my crappy gigs but then i started getting gigs at the house of blues and I would get like, um, like I opened for Kelly Joe Phelps, like right after 9-11, I remember that was a big one for me. I, I opened for a few other people there. So I had like my gigs that were basically cover gigs, but I knew that's not what I wanted to do. So I would get ones that I could do like half my own stuff and half covers, knowing that like this gig would go over much better if I played a Neil Diamond or a Jimmy Buffett song right here, but I don't want to do that. So I'm yeah. going to stick to like, it was always like sticking to some semblance of like, this is the direction I want to go in. I want to play my stuff and just playing the game. Like you have to, you know, um, because you know, nobody in Starbucks really cares if you're like belting out your, your original or one yeah. person might, but I, and I kept an email list and I would like, contact those people like i i, I would i was like the, the email list you're doing all of it i'm sure i was doing all for sure yeah yeah and then eventually i had i had a little help like i would find people along the way this guy mark davidson started like helping me out and i remember the first time he gave me like a slip of paper and it was basically like my tour it was three gigs that were out of town it was like delaware philly and like jersey or something and it was like 150 dollars 100 dollars, 250 dollars or something and i was like I made it. <laughs> couldn't believe it. I couldn't, you know, it was like gigs out of town. But the thing, like, yeah, I would play these gigs that were less desirable, but I always had, eventually I had like the one at the House of Blues to look forward to. And, and that was like, okay, the real gig was happening too. Like I knew that there was, that was a real show of like, here I am as an artist and let me do it. And I had a lot to, I mean, I would shudder to listen to those tapes. Like I still had a lot to learn. And like, mm -hmm. even that stages record, when I hear it, I'm like, you sound like a completely different person. It's totally yeah. different, right? I'm like rushing. Yeah. My voice is different. I mean, yep. it's weird. It's like I've really learned, or I you just you change over the years. Mm -hmm. you know, totally. You have to learn how to sing and stuff. How'd you get? Um, was it just doing the? Uh, how do you you change over, or I guess, or convert? Um, how do you get those first hundred fans? You know, like was it people that were interested in the cover stuff that they were like, oh, he can write some other songs or, or where did well, they come from? Yeah, you get people in those environments like you get, you know, I mean, first things first at the beginning, your friends have to come. You yeah. have to have friends and you have to have to have them come to the show. And it's like that because that's how you get the gig. Because like I would get like, OK, some crappy gig in a bar. But if nobody comes out, if I'm not adding any value to the bar's night or whatever, and no one's coming in and no one cares, then it's like, I'm not going to keep that gig for very long. 
So it had to be more like we would do like little ticketed things or whatever. I remember I like put on this like ticketed show at this awful like sports bar, Copperfields near Fenway Park. And um, like we had to sell our own tickets and then I had to bring a PA to, I brought my father's PA system from 1967. It was a shoddy, it was a shoddy operation. Um, but my friends came. Like yeah. I had, and they rounded up their friends. I had a bunch of friends that got out of like Northeastern. So they were in Boston and it was like, so I like, I can't understate the importance of just in the beginning. If, Bring people. if you have friends who support you, that's all you got, you know? And then yeah. literally this is happening to the, to this day. It's like, well, they'll bring that one person that didn't know you and maybe they like you, you know what I mean? Or when I was playing in the, in the bars, like, you know, I just remember playing for the backs of five drunks sitting at the bar or whatever. But maybe there was like, you know, two girls over here that were hanging out and they yeah. liked what I was doing and they got on the email list. And then one of them came out again. I mean, it's you're just like scratching at any kind of traction you can get, you know. So, but it was really like the email list was important, like just staying in touch with those people. And if anybody emails you, email them back or, you know, buy somebody a beer if they're into your music and, and you know, like... Don't wait for it to be the other way around. Yeah, you know? it's, it's so, grassroots politics. For real, you know, yeah. connections with people. It's still like yeah. that. I mean, I still like see people and connect with them and respond to them. And it's, it's like, otherwise, what are we doing here? Well, a perfect example. You know, I, haven't, I haven't seen in, gotten to talk to you in, in a few years now. And you're like, yeah, man, let's, let's, do, let's talk for an hour. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's great. That's yeah, great. because I know you and like I've seen mm -hmm. you do a bunch of cool creative stuff and and I'm into it and I get to talk about myself for an hour. So great. <laughs> what about, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a diff. well, actually, let me, let me keep going on, on some of this, this early stuff. So how do you deal with, um, people, how did you deal with people that hated you or hostile audience? And we've all been, you know, I remember playing this gig. I'll never forget. I'll play. It was, I, I played this gig up in Sylvan beach and it was raining. And if you're playing at a, beach place and it's raining like the only people that are out there drinking at 11 o'clock on a friday <laughs> Tough are one. people that ain't there for the beach you know and, and we started we, you know we started playing original stuff and uh i'll never forget this dude came up to me and he threw ten dollars at me and he goes please stop and he was like one of three uh, in the bar and it's like it was at 10 15 i had three hours to go you know how how do you deal with folks just are are not gonna get it or in those early days you're kind of you're stuck with them yeah it's tough i mean especially because in settings like you know like a bar or something it's like you know people didn't come there for you you're just trying to add some value to like what's going on and trying to win some people over or whatever so it's tough it's like this thing of like i don't know i never wanted to be the guy that was like too loud or, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I'd rather like sneak in there and get, draw people in. But I mean, easier said than done sometimes. Did it ever shake your confidence or were you just like full on? Oh, like yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, at the time, back in the day when I was starting these gigs too, I was, I was substitute teaching at my mm -hmm. old high school. So that was like my day gig sometimes. So it's like, if you could sit as a substitute teacher in front of a room full of high school kids at 7.30 in the morning, and feel that lack of respect, <laughs> you know? like then you. I really think it like trained me to be like, all right, well, I can yeah. survive this gig tonight. And I don't know. I mean, it, it's just tough. It's like 
because you're up there pouring your heart out and somebody yeah. will just hate on you or whatever. And like, I remember this guy, while I was playing this gig, 21 Nichols, and uh, it was a bar I liked actually. It was a good gig that I liked, but it was a bar in uh, Watertown, Mass. And this guy was walking out, he's got his takeout food or whatever. And I'm playing at the, they used to turn the like, they used to take out a booth, put a piece of plywood over it. And that was the, that was the stage. And this guy's walking out. Now I was playing, I was covering a Martin Sexton song. Mm-hmm. And, and he's just like, he's like, why don't you play some real music? And just like keeps walking. And I got so, I just like saw red. I was just like, and I'm sitting there playing a song from like my hero that I love. Mm-hmm. And like, and I just followed him outside. He was like, went across the street to his car and I just feeling the fit of rage. And I just went outside and I was just like, I do play real music. <laughs> and that was you, it. That was you all I got. dropped the guitar and you went outside? I you put felt- the guitar down and went outside, like just not knowing what to do. And that's all I could stammer out was I do play real music. <laughs> so I didn't fight him or anything, you know. Oh. But, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a balance between like, you know, sometimes people can be really disruptive at a show and it's a decision whether sometimes it's it's better to acknowledge them for the sake of all and kind of smooth it over. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you really, you have to ignore them and not let it get to you. You don't let it get to you either way, but you know what I mean? And that, yeah. that's taken me, I mean, I've been playing shows the last 20 years. Like I'm, I'm I, it's, I've gotten good at like learning how to police that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. nowadays it's like, people are buying tickets for me. Right. So right. if somebody's then it's not so much hate, but it's like loudness or drunkenness, especially solo acoustic. If I'm playing in a yeah. listening room, one person can ruin it. So I have to like acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And the vibe mm-hmm. is like the vibe that I've learned is like, cause you can't, I can't be like, shut up. Like, cause, because that, I'm the jerk then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah, yeah, we we turn on the little explicit thing. Yeah. Well, if we, if are you trying not to, because I, I can avoid no, but dude, it, dude. No, no, I trust me. I've dropped several four-letter words, and I'm only twelve episodes in. Okay, perfect. Um, no, but if I yell at somebody, you know, I'm the asshole. Yeah. So you can't. The vibe is like, I love you so much. Please shut up. Please, like you know, or just or just you have to like kill him with kindness. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, ch- so that you had the first, let's, let's call it the tour, the three, the three gig tour. Um, you didn't have friends in Delaware. I mean, does anyone have friends in Delaware? It, Probably um, not. Although I might've still had friends in Philly cause I went to college there, but so then how, some understanding of there. There's a big difference between playing the circuit. You know, I, I've, I was told, I can't remember who was telling me this. It was Joe Bonamassa or someone, someone that, that's also a, a full-time musician. They said, you know, the way you grow it is you play it's rings. You play like, one mile and then you play five miles and then you play 10 miles and you build an audience yeah. symmetrical. Is that how you did it too? Or was yeah. it like you're going everywhere? Well, that's how I, I mean, I tried to do it otherwise and got my ass kicked. Um, so mm-hmm. that, that is the way though. That is the, you know, like, I mean, I went on my first tour ever <clears throat> was in 2002. I was opening for a band called mountain of Venus mm-hmm. and they're, they were like, you know, like, jam rock band and i was their merch guy basically but they would let me open whenever they could and it was like you know six of us and three dogs and a van and a trailer for the for the summer and you know no hotels nothing like it was just like you know camp out and crash on floors and you know and uh and it was great and so then the next year i thought okay i'd done this national tour with them and i had played in a bunch of these places i was like 
2003, I was like, all right, I'm going to go national. It's time <laughs> to go. Exactly. You know, <laughs> just like, and so I was like, all right, I'm ready for a national tour. Booked it myself. Had this 1987 Toyota van, which was an amazing van, uh, but it like blew up in the desert. And like, it just like, I just, it was a disaster. Like I had to, I mean, I, I got through it, but I had to cancel some stuff because I physically couldn't make it there. But a lot of stuff, I just like would rent a car or get a flight on a credit card or something and then do it. And then like, when I was in LA, as I would find out later, my appendix ruptured. And then I flew to Vegas to like meet up with somebody to go to this wedding. And I went right to the hospital. I had my appendix out. Wow. And I saw, I was just like sitting there like, and I had to drive back across country with my tail between my legs. And, but I, I made it back, but that was like a lesson in like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. And it was beyond all the other stuff. Like you can't, if I can't get back to those places like regularly, it's not, I'm not ready to like, you know, the circles thing is a perfect example. It's like, it's like, cause when I was starting, I, I was playing 15 to 18 shows a month around Boston. It's a lot of shows. And then it's a lot. I was just playing all the time. And then, and that's when I first made the leap in 2003, I was like, all right, I'm making a living off of making music, but I was still playing all those bars. That's when I would have the good house of blues show, but I was still like just hustling, like taking any gig I could get. Then <clears throat> I met a guy <clears throat> Or he found me, <clears throat> excuse me, who would start booking me. And he was like, all right, now you're going to play one show a month around Boston. And I was like, what are you crazy? Like, I can't, I'm making a living at this. And he's like, no, trust me. And he did that, the circle thing. I mean, it's like, basically you, you saturate a market or an area. And then, and then you, it creates scarcity. Yeah. yeah, you do by touring. And then so you're, you're, you're kind of getting your ass kicked touring at first, but then you're saturating that to some extent. And then when you come back home, you do the one big show and boom. And he was right. Like within like two years, we were selling out the paradise in Boston, which was like, you know, 700 people or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it worked. Very cool. Um, how did, how did you go from, you booked that first, first two by tour by yourself, the one that you got your ass kicked on. And uh, how, what do you, what did you say to club owners? Was it, it, and is it different now? I mean, you're at a different level now, but what did you say? Like, I'm coming through, give me a gig. I mean, you couldn't be a draw at those places. So how did you get a gig? Yeah, I know. I mean, I used to have like press kits that I put together. Mm -hmm. I had this like certain shiny kind of folder I would get at Staples and then I had stickers printed up in my name on them and yep. I put that on and I put my business card inside and I put the CD here and I had a bio here and I had an eight by tens here that I would make, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, send it out and hope for the best and follow up, you know, and that was the worst, just like emailing and calling and just trying to, and these people have no reason to give you a gig, really, you know what I mean? Um, and I didn't know enough probably at the time to be like, I'm worth this many right. people or something, but I think I was just, you know, you're just looking for a gig on on talent or whatever on on drive you know so it was random i mean most of them you wouldn't get or somehow you'd meet someone who knew someone who had, you know and really networking like they always say like i think a lot of it came down to that and some gigs were i remember there was one gig i got like some places will just kind of give anybody a gig and those were what you have to take you know i remember yeah. i got a gig i think it was in san diego which i ended up missing i think because my band broke down or something but i my friend jesse needed a gig and i was like oh yeah i got this contact with this person over there and he just called him up and they gave him a gig and he wow. called me back he's like yo i got the gig i don't know like he just called out of the blue so i mean you know thank god for you know there are places that do it i think about it now it's like the stuff that talent buyers have to go through and just wait yeah. bands especially at small clubs and small agents and stuff it's like everybody's in a band now everybody's yeah, a dj exactly. everybody I everybody i know 
It's crazy. What's your DJ name? You got one? I got DJ RCM. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or no, wait, wait, no. MCRCM. That's what it is. MCRCM. MCRCM. Yeah. Okay. No, I've never done anything with it, but enough people have asked me what your DJ name is, so I had to come up with an answer. So. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Dude, everybody's a DJ, so. Yeah, sure. Uh, I feel like a DJ with these headphones. <laughs> you look the part. Yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a there comes a point where you know i have i have friends that have been kind of doing the the regional thing and there comes a point where like you get a i guess we you get a booking agent you get an agent you get a Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know what the the actual terminology is do they find you do you find them how did that work with you it they found me basically but i was you know i was pounding the pavement for a good solid few years um, Mm -hmm. and booking on my own. That's the hardest and most important, I think, leap to make is like getting someone else to book for you. And agents these days are like slammed with acts because there's so many more, everybody's got a band, you know, and and there's a lot of good ones. And um, just every agent I know just seems like so kind of like overworked, but, but they're important to have. I mean, it's, it's such a no brainer. If you can get one, it's like basically, you pay them 10% of whatever you make on the gig and they book all the gigs. And you basically, they're basically like, they're kind of robots in a way, in a good way. Like I was, you know, you have this perception of like an agent's like a guy that's going to get on the phone and yeah, talk and argue like, for you. Like, no, no that's, we need this. No, you get managers for that. Managers yeah. can do that. But that, but now, I mean, you might have an agent that does that, but m- mostly agents these days are like <clears throat> guys with a million connections and they're locked in and they just, their calendar, like, calendar monkeys basically mm-hmm. they just fill your calendar you tell them where and when and they book it you know and they just try to get it and they get and it's like it's no small feat like i because mm-hmm. they have all these contacts and so and they have to get holds at the clubs and they get in touch with them and the clubs get in touch with them because they provide good acts and they can just they can work new acts in and stuff like that it's like the biggest no-brainer ever if you can get an agent and so getting one is yeah like i i was hustling and like got myself into again, with like the, I was playing crappy gigs, but I was also playing good gigs too. And would yeah. try to get myself into those more and more and keep the contacts and email people and all that stuff. And I, I got myself into um, this thing. I think it was the point in Philly and right down the street from where I went to college. And there was a guy, Jesse Lundy that booked there. So it's like, I was starting to get myself into a couple real clubs if I could, you know, and, and, and so, and that guy liked me. And then I also got myself into Burke Fest, which was like a festival in Massachusetts, which is the first festival I played. And, and they liked me because I knew some contacts there. I would play their parties. And again, it took like a couple of years of like meeting people and playing and hustling. And then I got into like these couple legit things and I'm sure a couple others, but two people like those, somebody from The Point and somebody from Burke Fest told this guy, Tom Baggett, about me. And so he came and checked me out at Burke Fest. And he's like, that's what he does is like sort of mm-hmm. take band baby bands zero to 60 and like build them up. So he was like, he contacted me. It was like, Hey, I'll, well, you know, I want to book you. And that was a whole site. That was like really great. And then not great, but then it was, it was, that was a, a crucial a step. Itself, yeah. No, it was, but he was, he was a crucial, like he was, he was the one that was like, okay, now you're not playing Boston 15 yeah. times a month. You're playing once a month and we're going to, and he was the, he taught me that whole thing of like, scarcity and that you know saturation and then scarcity 
and he could really i mean he he's still he's still doing it like he's books he books bands and just mm-hmm. kicks the hell out of them on the road because it's what they need and, and it works you know well i remember you guys are playing like 150 200 shows a year uh yeah. when you were rolling through through our area right and yeah i remember we did 206 in 2006 and that wow. was about it's just because it's easy to remember but that was about the average around then it was definitely like I would tally it up at the end of the year and be like, yeah, I did 196 gigs this year. And, you know, and then with the band, yeah. Yeah. About 200 for years. Uh, could you be profitable with taking a big band on the road? Or was that like, you know, now it's, it seems like it's, uh, it's the, the records promote the tours and the old days, the tours promoted the records. Yeah. I know that whole thing. I mean, I think you can, I think like, um, you definitely can. I mean, there are bands that are profitable. Like you can, you can do it. But there's also a reason there's a lot of like smaller bands that that make sense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I really yeah. think like when the it's White Stripes years ago, yeah, it was just like okay, it was, you know, it's easier to get two people in a, or like shovels and rope or something. It's yeah, like two people. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. When I see like an Afrobeat band, and they got like 14 people. I'm like, bless your hearts. You yeah, how do they do it? You're making the greatest music too, but like I yeah. don't know how you're doing it. Um, <laughs> excuse me. No, it's hard. Um, but we did it by just like, you ha- you know, we had that young, like ambition and young naivete, like really, yeah. really, you know, like not knowing what we were doing, but knowing like, okay, we're going to another city and there's a gig there and we're loving playing this music. And there's also going to be drinks and girls there and whatever, you know, or whatever it is, like you're just in your twenties and like that, you know? Yeah. So, and we slept on floors or if we could, we'd get like one hotel for the whole band you know there's mm-hmm. like six of us in one hotel room like for you know years or you know and um so you know i'm thankful now like i had these guys that and i was thankful then too but i really had those guys i mean i had the essentially the same guys for 10 years yeah um and so that's been just like a blessing and a crucial part of like you know, because I had it under my name the whole time. Yeah. Because we never thought of a band name really, and it, yeah. I was I was leading the charge and writing all the songs and doing all the behind the scenes stuff. But, but everyone pitched in, and we had like, you know, people all just kind of like got into this thing of us chugging down the road. And that was a, that was a that was a big huge thing. Can we talk about writing for a bit? Um, yeah. I'm really curious. You know, what makes a good song to you? <laughs> um. It could be so many things. I mean, yeah, to me is the key. Because yeah. it's beautiful that it's like a good song could be anything to anyone. You could have something. I could have a song that brings me to tears mm-hmm. that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And somebody could be walking by and being like, what is that shit? That's such yeah. crap. I don't, you know, so I love that. Well, let's put it this way. When you're writing and you you write a lot, is there a point where you're like, ah, oh, I'm onto something? What and What is that? Can you pinpoint it? Or is, do you just know it when you hear it? or write it uh i think so well i will say for me like a good song is there's something about um believing someone that has part to do with it like there's just i want to i when I, I believe somebody when they sing something or it doesn't even have to have words if it moves you viscerally something about a song's rhythm like it's it's interesting it's like how many songs do we know that are like classic songs that you kind of sing along with on the radio that's like an amazing track yeah and i've sung along with a thousand times and i still have no idea what they're saying or talking about but it's amazing. So it's yeah, like, led better. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I love that song. I know half yeah. the pro jam stuff in the beginning. It's right. like, you right. know, 
or even like De La Soul. Like I love that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And like some of the raps I'll be doing and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm saying right now. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a lesson for me because I get too wrapped up in like the meaning of it and getting every word mm -hmm. perfect and stuff like that. So I don't know, for me, I think like I have to, I just sort of always have the radar on for ideas. And so, and it comes for me like in little scraps a little bit at a time all the time basically so i just have to be ready for it and get it down when it comes so i have like a million like notes in my phone and voice memos and stuff and um yeah like when something really like resonates with me i want to hear it over and over and so it, usually it starts on the guitar but i'll get ideas independent from the guitar too and bring it there mm -hmm. but usually it's like i'm messing around on the guitar and i find something that i like and then i hear a melody over it and if it really resonates I just want to hear that, man. I'll just like gibberish out that melody and sing something. I've just taught this in a workshop the other day. It's just like, make a joyful noise. Like let yourself make a sound that feels good. And usually it's like rhythmically, it feels good. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what you're saying, don't worry about it yet. Like, and then you can even record yourself doing it. And then you hear it back and you're like, I hear a word that wants to come mm -hmm. out there. And so you just start sketching out kind of what's there. And if you keep doing that, you could have a song. Like there's a song underneath the surface that wants to come out and you just have to kind of see what it is, like the discovery thing. That's mostly the mode that I write from. Sometimes I have an idea and I want to, you know, this, that, but, but usually it's discovery. So do you have a, a set, um, do you have a set process? Like, do you, do you wake up every morning and go, I'm going to write for an hour? Or I'm gonna... I should. I okay. need that process. <laughs> that is really, I mean, when I've done that, that's, I did that for the hours just leaving record because mm -hmm. I was like, I had a deadline and I had to, cause some of these songs take years, you know? Yeah. And I could definitely benefit from a disciplined practice of writing. I think anybody could. And so. What do you mean you had a deadline with that record? Like I had already set up the recording studio. Like I had a recording studio booked and a deposit in for this beautiful studio in New Orleans. And I had Anders Osborne showing up to produce it with its engineer who had engineered wow. Bob Dylan. Yeah. And stuff. I mean, it was like, okay, so I got to have my shit together for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I had these songs and, and they, I knew the song, like, and I would send him ideas and we called through and got like what should fit on this record, which really resonated with me. Like, there were all these songs just really coming from my heart and I was going through a lot of stuff and the songs were how I was making sense of it. But I don't always like when I, you know, when I, I like to hear when I'm, when something really resonates, I just want to hear it, but that's not, I have to like kind of whack myself together and just be like, yeah. finish it. Like get, you have to, cause then it's time to like really finish it and get it done. So I had to do that. So I like, so I had like a month or something like that. And I was like, I got to finish these songs. There's a lot of great ideas. And I know that there are great ideas here, but I need to finish them. And so, yeah, I would like, I would write like, you know, I forget what it was like an hour or two a day. It wasn't a ton, but, but the, and they usually the turn into more. Yeah. It was something like discipline. I was like, I have to do it today. And then in the process of doing that, then like, you know, the more you sit down, the more the muse shows up and like, you can do it. You just flex those muscles, you know? So that's why I wrote point, the title track like that, actually. It just came all at once. Is there a point where, um, where you know, where a song is finished for you? Is it when it hits tape? Is it, is it always changing? No. Or is there points where you're just like, this is it, this is done? I just know it's like you have an inner compass and you kind of know when things, I think they all could change at any time. I don't see them as like, well, some are done, but I'm always open to the possibility that they could change. Cause there's ones that I've put on, 
you know, put on records. And years yeah. later, there's something about that line. I keep singing it and something about it kind of bugs me still. Mm-hmm. And if I find a better line or a better word, I will change. And sometimes it's as, it's like as simple as like a pronoun or something like it's just, but it's, I, I know when it's right and I know when it isn't. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes you put things out that, you have to kind of let it go too. Like you can't yeah. be such a perfectionist that it's like, I got to get it perfect before it comes out. I mean, some stuff you have, they, they can be good to kind of let it fly. But I don't, I think like, you know, they can always change. Do you, uh, is it a, is it a volume business for you in terms of the writing? Like how many, how many organs are there? Are, are, do you write a ton of songs that most people never hear? Do you write a bunch of them and they all get road tested or do you kind of wait till, you know, uh, you know, you've got a quite, quite a catalog and uh, how many more are in the, in the dustbin of history or do most of them end up getting refined to some kind of release or life? Um, no, most of, I wish I had my phone so I could show you, like, I can scroll through like my voice memos and just keep mm-hmm. going so we can sit here for like a minute. And it's just like, really? it's all, yeah, it's all like ideas. And there, I mean, there's, it's always, there's always like, I don't know, 50 ideas I haven't worked on that are sitting there from, you know, and it's fun. I'll go through it and be like, Oh, that I forgot about that. Or sometimes I'll capture something I totally forgot about. And like, and when I'm driving, it'll just creep into my mind. I'm like, Oh, that was a good idea. And then I'll just work on it. And I'll just work out a scrap of like, that line could kind of fit, but that doesn't really work. And then if I'm lucky, I get like one line or something. Mm-hmm. And then I just keep going. And I just, th- a lot of them follow that process. Some come a lot quicker, but usually not. Like usually, I know it's like that for a lot of writers too. Like I know, um, I mean like some of the great writers, like Leonard Cohen would like wrestle with a song for like 12 years. Yeah. Sometimes not get it. Paul Simon too. He would say like, sometimes you get the song, sometimes you don't, you know? So for me, it's a lot of just like, I need to stay on those ideas and be open to them when they come. And then the main thing is eventually if it's, if I'm going to put it on a record, I got to finish them because they don't usually come out finished, you know, and that that's when like the real work comes in. But in that work is a lot of creativity and spark. And so but like right now I have like a bunch of ideas for the next record, but I have to like get in there and finish the songs. How tight do you hold the songs to your chest when you're working with other musicians in the studio live? I mean, because at some point there's, there's a give and a take or uh, yeah. you just, you know, or do you, is there just a lot, is there a lot of just trust with the people you're working with and you know, they're going to get you there. Yeah. I think there, there, there has to be. And that's something that I learn more and more as I go, you know, because you do keep it close to the chest and there's like a control thing. And, and, you know, that's why co-writing with people can sometimes not work at all, or sometimes it does, you know, and there has to be like a, you have to be less precious with your ideas and giving up, but I can, I mean, I have the ability, like I'm a solo artist. I can, if I want be like, Nope, this is my idea. This is what I'm doing. Nope. We're not changing it. You know, but I don't, I, you know, I don't usually feel strongly enough about anything really to be like that. Like I'm always kind of open to like, Oh yeah, that that could work. Um, Which can help me and hurt me, you know, but like on the, on the, I was just leaving record. Like I would, we did the whole thing in the control room of the studio and this guy, Mark Howard, this engineer has this amazing like technique where you're hearing it come out of the studio monitors while you're tracking no headphones, no nothing. It's just all open. And it's not bleeding or it is it's all bleeding, but he mixes it in such a way that it gets like this shimmer to it. Wow. And it, he's like a vocal specialist. Like it just, it really like, it's a special thing. So it was a f- cool way to record. Um, but we would like, so they would start rolling and I would do a take and, um, 
and they'd be like, that was good. I was like, all right, let me, you know, let me just polish it up and fit. I screwed up that one part and let me just finish it. And I'm going to get my little stomp box going here or whatever it was. Like I had something. Yeah. And then, and then they would always be like, no, 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 first take was, and I'd be like, no, no, let me do another one or whatever. And they were like, no, that first take, there was something going on there. And I was like, you guys are crazy. Like I messed up the chorus. Like it's not, no. And then I would go back and listen the next day and they were always right. It was like, they had something. So, I mean, definitely with producers and stuff and, you know, if someone's in the role of that, you're, who you're trying to work with, like just having trust with them is so important, especially for producer in the music world. It's like, if you don't trust your producer, producer don't have them, you know, cause they, they have that. Cause you, yeah. Because these songs start so close to the chest. Yeah. Yeah. And even with like, you know, an agent or a manager, like working in the trenches, like I have to acknowledge that everything is this close in front of my face. Like, I only have so much perspective on what's going on because I'm constantly in the trenches doing the thing that I do. So I need people with perspective to be like, Hey man, you're just really running into a wall over here. You need to like go over here and play this festival. Yeah. You know, like I, I, you know, I need that creatively too. It's like, all right, that seems good. But you know, and that's where it was like, you know, Anders is like an amazing singer songwriter beacon, like dude who's been at it for decades longer than I have. So the trust was there. I was like, all right, this guy knows what he's doing and I trust him. What about the, you know, I, I love the, uh, the record that you did with Haley Jane and, uh, yeah. you know, how did that come about? We just started right. Like I met her years ago and we did a show together on the vineyard that my ex-girlfriend booked and then we met. And then a couple of years later, uh, we met and kind of hit it off a little. And then we, we, then we started writing and mm -hmm. we did like a, we did like a writing session um and it's just just to see like what would happen we had no idea and then we immediately got like a tune it just sort of very quickly was like sort of we got a tune and it was good and it felt like we were talking about we were able to like talk about things in our lives that were happening and kind of put that into the song something just kind of like worked about like i was saying with the co-writing like sometimes mm -hmm. it works sometimes it doesn't it just kind of worked and then there's no expectations. Like we're going to do a record. It was just like, let's No, we had on. no idea. Like what I just, you know, sometimes you just have to get together and try stuff and see where it goes, you know? And I yeah. knew that she was like, great. I didn't know how good of a writer she was until I sat down with her. And she mm -hmm. just like has so much creative energy and is, and, and wants to do that work. And like, she would just keep pushing. Sometimes that's the best. Like when you're collaborating, it's like, you know, Sometimes you need to push. Sometimes you need to be pushed. And, you know, sometimes I'd just be giving up. Like, you know, when I would probably put it away just in my phone again and walk away. Mm -hmm. She's like, wait, no, what are we saying? We're on to something. We got to do this. You know, so like, so, you know, we just pushed each other in the right ways. And then I went back home to Burlington and went down to Nectar's for the Grateful Dead night. Like, and, and I just got a beer and went on the dance floor. And we had just done this co-running session in Boston. And I just turned and Haley's there on the dance floor. She's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I live here. She's like, I live here. I'm like, what? Like, what you, like, somehow we just didn't even talk about that. So then we were up here and then we started writing. And yeah, it just clicked. It just became quickly like, okay, we're going to do this like male, female, archetype mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it's just, it's, that's been fun to work on. What about, um, you know, at this point, you've gotten to play with a lot of, and work with, you know, a lot of really, um, special musicians and writers and and i'm gonna venture it well i know like you did a record with martin sexton and he's been someone that you have always talked about and gone to as a a hero or inspiration uh what's it like to get to 
to work and get to know some of these people that were so influential in your early career. How does that change you or has it, has there been any surprises or letdowns or what happens when you start to get to play on that level? It's such a trip, man. Cause it's, you just look, I mean, I, you know, I used to be sitting there in that box office at the house of blues. I remember like looking, I had heard Martin Sexton for the first time. It was just like, at my friend's yeah. house. And so I started looking him up online and just reading every single thing I could about him and just being like, this is the guy, this is like everything about him is, you know, and then cut to whatever, 10 years later, I'm on his tour bus and, right, right. you know, and, uh, you know, it, it's just, yeah, it, it's cool. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to describe because, you know, you see them at a human level like I think when you hold somebody in this high regard and you just see them on a stage, then there's an image that you paint of them and they're just this, you know, but when you meet them on a human level, that's like one of the greatest things I think about just staying with what you do and getting better at it is like, eventually you meet these people face to face and you're able to meet them face to face. Like I met Martin Sexton at the radio station in Boston in like 2003. And I just walked up like a little schoolgirl and like gave him my CD and I was like, I hey, totally, I yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? And, and so it's like, I met him, but I didn't, you didn't know, meet him. He, yeah. he just like, it was me and my buddy and he gave him a bunch of his CDs and Martin Sexton was like, keep the faith fella and he just walked off into the snowstorm <laughs> in Boston and we were like oh. so so then years later at Gathering of the Vibes Assembly of Dust had met and was working with Martin which I couldn't believe and we had done stuff with Assembly of Dust so it was like mm -hmm. like yeah it was, six it degrees, was like so, yeah. it was just like it was getting closer and then I remember even asking Reed like if I was like dude can I sit in like when he sits in because then maybe I could sing with him or whatever and Reed was like so nice they had already had so much going on with their set and Reed was like but there was still for you at that point you were like this, this oh I was still like I can't Starstruck, well, yeah. that would be my dream if I could sing yeah. on a stage you know and um Reed was super nice and was like he's like dude I love you like a brother I, I can't do it on this one but you know but Reed's done so much other stuff for me <laughs> but so but then at that vibes I met Martin Sexton backstage and I was freaking out. I came back to my campsite. I was like, I met Martin Sexton. I mean, but I did meet him like on the level of like, you know, I was playing that festival. Mm -hmm. He was cool. Yeah. His wife was cool. It was much less like me handing him the CD and much more like on the level. And then I got on some dates after that. And then it just started becoming somewhat normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still have moments. I'll see him sometimes. I still have moments where I'm like, that's Martin Sexton. Um, so, but so yeah, was, you, you, you meet them. The combination. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead sorry. You know, I was just thinking like, you know, and you, when you're on there, but when you meet somebody as a human, there's a thing of like that, that holding them on a pedestal gets burst a little bit. Oh, they used yeah. to always have that inside because they're just human. We're all people. So when you see them on that level, it's interesting though, because in some ways you respect them more because you see the work that they have to do, the things that they do to do. I mean, he, that guy, like, knows what he wants for a show and he zones in on all these little details and they work and he just is very like clear on like what he wants and what he doesn't want and you see this like attention to detail and preparation for every single show that he does where I'm just like you know chilling backstage like trying to get my head together to go on I'm like what am I playing I don't know whatever that guy's like like laser focus so it's things like that that I didn't know about when I just saw him up on a pedestal. So I respect that more. And in other ways, he's not the superhuman, like, God that I, you know, he's just a dude that, like, likes yeah. barbecue and stuff, you know, so. 
I had a, I got to go to a, do a writer's retreat out in Ohio a couple of years ago with, um, who are, uh, two musicians who were like, that was, there's like Tom Waits and there's, you know, Karen and Linford from, from over the Rhine. And I got to write with, write with them at their farmhouse for uh, a weekend. And it was that same experience. It was like, you guys are my heroes. And then on one level, I was like, Oh, but I was almost a little disappointed to be like, Oh, you're, you're, you're just people too. And I'm just cooking, yeah. I'm just cooking chicken in the kitchen with you now. Um, yeah. But it so in, have you ever been in a situation um, where that's happened and you're like, yeah, it was better on the pedestal, you know, or do you, is there, does someone have everything? Does everyone have something to offer? I think they do, but I can understand that. I mean, there's, you know, my buddy, Jesse D, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Jesse, he's like yeah, a soul yeah. singer. He opened up for Al Green a few years ago and uh, a couple shows and I saw him and Jesse got standing O and stuff. It was amazing. But um, I was like, yo, did you meet Al and stuff? He's like, he's like, I've heard some weird stories about that guy. So I just didn't even want to do that. Hmm, like, I didn't even so he just stayed away because he didn't want his, he just wanted yeah. to keep his thing so I can understand. I mean, that's the worst, you know. And I had a good feeling. experience. It was just, it was a, it was a, it was a little different than yeah. I thought it was going to be, you know. No, I had similar. I mean, I actually had similar things. With, yeah, some of my heroes, where you meet them, and and you know, when you meet them on a human level, there's certain things that I guess you could say are disappointing because you just have this perfect image of them in your mind, and then you're like, oh, actually, I thought you would have worked harder at this part of your writing or whatever, but you mm-hmm. don't, and you're just kind of like, want to do this. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. but that, but but then you see the genius of them come through in sure. different ways. So, um, but that experience of like meeting your heroes and having them be a jerk or something is like the worst thing ever. Like, so I've never really had that. I don't, nothing sticks out in my mind. Yeah. Usually people are pretty great people. I think when you, you know, when you, unless it's like, well, I don't know. I, I haven't met many jerks. Mm, that's good. It's good to hear. Yeah. Um, you're at, so you're in Burlington right now. And, and uh, what is, what is, what is, uh, I, if you're, if you're sharing it, well, what does life look like for you right now? And, and how is it different from when you were doing 200 shows a year? I mean, it seems like you're a little more settled, uh, I guess. Trying let me, to let me rephrase that. Let me, well, no. What does it, what does it look like? Because <laughs> I've got, I've got a couple other ones that I wanted to ask you too. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. It, it was different. Like when I, those 10 years with the band were like a thing. And once that ended, it all kind of shifted, but that was like, we're getting in our van. We're doing our shows for our tour. We're coming back. Eventually we're living in our house together that we have. Then we're getting back yeah. in our van. Then we're doing this, you know, once that ended, I didn't need the van anymore. Like na- that after that for the band, I started hiring guys and it was more kind of a hired gun thing. Although now it's gelled into more of a cohesive thing again, um, which I, it means a lot to me, but it's still like, I pay them a certain amount for every gig and mm-hmm. they get there. We all take separate cars. If I'm going for a longer run, I rent a van or something, or I, I play solo. So, but now it's like, so it's just a little more like, um, I'm trying to find some balance of, of a home life, you know, and um, I'm out here in Vermont looking out at this amazing view I have from this little deck I have in Burlington. And this is like 15 years in the making for me. This is like, I haven't felt at home in a place for like a very long time. So I, more, I'm 41 years old. Like the more and more I go, the more I realize the importance of that mm-hmm. and the importance of like, if you're just shooting in one direction for so long, I've built a career and that's great. 
but what's it all for if like I don't know where my friends are or if I never have a family or if I can't keep a girlfriend or whatever you know and I'm still like single no kids it's I have a lot of freedom there's that's great but like I'm looking for some balance in my life and so so I'm starting to find it but I'm you know I'm still hustling my ass off. So it's more like, like I just went to North Carolina last week. I'm starting to do these solo shows for the, to put out this record. Mm -hmm. And before that I was doing band shows every weekend for forever. Um, And then it was like two days later, Oh, here starts the solo stuff. So I went to North Carolina last week for four days. I flew down for that this weekend. Then I come back, I recover here for a couple of days this weekend I'm doing Philly and New York and DC. I'll drive down to that solo acoustic. I'll do it all by myself. Then I'll drive back here to Vermont. Then the next weekend I go out with the band for two days in Saranac Lake and Plymouth Mass. Then I'll come back here. Then I have this gig I got that weekend. And then I then in November I'm going out for a month. Wow. And then when I come back, I have like almost all of December and January off which is like, which is something I haven't done. Like, and that's what I need. I got these new managers and they're much better than me at organizing. Like, okay, you're going to be on tour. Then you're going to be off. Then you're going to, you know, and I've needed that. Cause in some ways the weekend warrior thing can like, it can stress you out even more. Cause by the time I get home, I, I don't fully decompress. Then I have to leave again. That's why I called the last record. I was just leaving. It's like, and I, I joke that I'm going to call the next record. I'm still leaving <laughs> because I am but I'm working on it, but it's a lot. So for me, it's a lot of, it's been a lot of driving around the Northeast. Yeah. I don't, I don't play in Burlington much. I just come here to live. I would like to play here more actually, but I work elsewhere and I drive several hours all the time to go Mm -hmm. make that happen. And I do great shows nowadays and people buy tickets and then I come home. Well, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking about that that you just, you just made me think about was, um, as you were kind of growing th- through this career, the career and you're like, okay, now I'm touring. No, I'm not touring. Um, did you have to figure out the, the business end of this thing? Or do you, you know, yeah. you have a manager that, you know, things like, okay, so how do you do food and shelter in the, the two months that you're not touring? You know, is, yeah. do, do people help you plan that? Is that something that you've come up with over the years? What works for you? Well, now they help me plan. I just got a business manager like a month ago. Oh, wow. And these new managers help me do that more. But literally to this point in my career, I've had help. Like, don't get me wrong, I've had managers and agents and people who have helped me in a team, you know. But in terms of that stuff, not so much. I've just generally had, I think, good work ethic. And I just kind of eyeball money and stuff where I'm like, okay, we're taking in about this much. And and you're just constantly – it's been stressful. I mean, because you're constantly booking – work booking shows out like four months in advance or more or less and so i'm just constantly having to gauge like okay wait a minute i'm gonna be really fried after this i have to because it's it's such a like you spend so many years trying to get gigs then when you start getting them you just take them it's still in me to be like well that's a good gig i gotta take that that's good money or that's i love that place or you know and but after a while you have to like i'm still learning to say no it's such a blessing to get to have to do that but like you really got to saying no is like a spiritually huge thing that you need to learn to do. You need to learn to actively disappoint people. Somebody told me, and it's like, (laughs) that is not in my nature, but you do, you know, and you have to, or else, or else I will grind myself into the ground, which I have done and continue to do on occasion, you know, but like, I have to say no. So 
just like it was hard because I had the band, the original band back in the day on a salary, which was not much by human mm -hmm. adult standards. But we were in a band and I was doing the best I could to and paying off the mountain of debt we were in. Yeah. And just and then. But so, I mean, when they had time off, which wasn't very much, but when they did, which they desperately needed and I did, too. I had to go play solo shows to make sure I could keep paying them and come up with that nut every month yeah. to like keep get keep everybody going and it was just a lot. So since then the sort of now I pay everybody by gig and and they can I got you know it takes a while to find the right guys who can roll with that and they can yeah. gig elsewhere and make a living elsewhere and it just took the pressure off me always having to come up with the salary for these guys to live on, you know. And those guys earn that salary and then so I mean like you know it's, yeah. It was just tough, you know, we were kind of all all in. Um, but so now I have someone to help me, like there's actually budgeting going on, all these things that I can't do yeah. on my own, more planning and, and that, like, that's a good feeling. Uh, oh, cool. Because, you know, because then I don't have to take those, you know, yeah. if I know that enough money's coming in and I don't have to take the gigs, and, you know. Uh, while you're off or, you know, when you're not playing, are there any, do you have any like morning routines or just routines that you, or things that you stick with that kind of keep you focused or creative or centered? Any, anything that you do that is, you know, a, a pillar of, of sanity for you? I have trouble with like any kind of discipline practice, but they come and they go, you know, mm -hmm. I had a pretty disciplined meditation practice going for a few years and it's been waning lately, but that helped me a lot. Uh, just in general, like, I don't know, just in these long-term ways, you know, I, at one point was meditating like two hours a day for like a year wow. or two. And then, and it's, and on either side of that, I was meditating a lot. And I still meditate, but it's, I got to get back to it actually. Um, but it's tough. I'm looking now, I'm like reaching out to really try to find like some help with like a disciplined physical practice, which I've never had. Mm -hmm. I do stuff. I went in there for a 10 mile bike ride yesterday. Like I can, I try to stay active, but it's, I may do nothing today. Like I'm just trying to find something. I can't have this excuse of like traveling all the time is the reason I don't exercise, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm trying to do it. I try to like nowadays, like it's really dawns on me, like how much downtime is important because I used to almost not believe in it. It was like, no, my mm -hmm. work ethic, I got to work. You know, it dawned on me like a few months ago and I wrote it in my notebook that like workaholics lack discipline, which seems counterintuitive but they really do. It's like, because you think, oh, I work all the time, so I have discipline. But if you're a workaholic, you're addicted to work. You can hide behind your work or this one mode of work. You're not disciplined enough to say, no, I need to stop work. It's that stopping thing we were talking about mm -hmm. or saying no, like. Actively like few, disappointing people. Yeah, or like, <laughs> like a few years ago, I never learned to read music, but a few years ago I started mm. to do it. And there's a symbol for rest. It's like when I saw that, that's did things to me. Like I had never seen, I never took band or anything. Like it was like, mm -hmm. no, a rest is not nothing. There's a symbol for it. It's a thing that you do. You rest here. You do not play here. That's the thing that you're doing. Not, you know, and it's like that, at, that idea is like the more I go on, like I need to, like now I recognize when I come off the road, that Monday is like my dip day. <clears throat> and if I'm not careful, <clears throat> I will beat myself up <clears throat> for feeling like crap on that day. Cause you're like, what's wrong with you? You have this great life, whatever, you know, but I have to know. So it's things like, it's almost like psychological stuff of like, I know I have to self care is so important, especially on those like few days when I come back off the road and I have to take it easy on the emails and the work. I have to be disciplined enough to know when not to work. 
and then I, I work my ass off when I work. I mean, I, I still work a lot. So I don't know if that's like a routine, but that's like something I've learned. Dude, that's great. I'm going to, I mean, that's a great place to end it. You know, I think that yeah. was super useful. Um, you know, thank, thanks a lot for, for sharing. Sure. All this. I, it's, it's answered a lot of questions I've wanted to ask you for a long time. And, uh, oh, yeah, man. you know, yeah, really anytime, dude. It. You can always ask me more. I feel like I just rambled off the spot. No, no, no. It was great. It was great. Um, um, no, thanks, Ryan. Well, I I appreciate you just you know immediately responding to a, a random ping. So uh, um, it was sure. great, and I love what you do, man. Really do. Thanks, so. Ryan. Back at you, man. I appreciate thanks, you, bro. Dude. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I'll I'll be keeping tabs on you from the road. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right, see you, Ryan. Bye. Bye. That was fun. That was, a, that was a lot of fun. Profound at the end. Rest. Need some rest. Uh, I got to thank Ryan for taking the time. I know he's super busy. Uh, and he just put out a record, the, the Woodstock Sessions, and, and it's been on repeat in our house. Uh, my wife and I have both been really digging the Woodstock Sessions. You can get it on Spotify. You can learn more about Ryan and where he's going to be at ryanmontblue.com. And, uh, and pick up the records. They're great. They're really good. So thanks a lot for tuning in. Um, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, go sign up for the newsletter at rustbeltstartup.com. And we'll see you in two weeks with the finale of season one of Rust Belt Startup.